0: This week on restoring confidence,
1: the realization that you cannot entirely depend on imports or foreigners to actually provide you with things when the emergency arises.
0: Hi, I'm Rita Tritscher. Welcome to Restoring Confidence, a podcast that looks at the health and economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and plots a roadmap to recovery. Today, my guest is Branko Milanovic. He's a Serbian-American economist who's an expert on income inequality. He used to be the lead economist at the World Bank's research department. But since 2014, he's been a visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's also written numerous books, including Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System that Rules the World, which came out last year. I called Mr. Milanovic at his home in Washington, D.C. We talked about how the COVID-19 crisis will change the global economy. We also discussed why economists get it wrong and why he's doubtful that a reckoning is coming on income inequality. Here's our conversation. Mr. Milanovic, thank you for joining us today. Just to start off, I wanted to ask you right now, there's a lot of talk about how this pandemic is a moment of change. Do you believe that? And if so, how do you think the pandemic will change the global economy?
1: well it's a difficult question you know and i myself of of two minds on that let, let me explain that i think that there will be some changes that would happen first of all the realization that you cannot entirely depend on <clears throat> on imports or foreigners to actually provide you with things at uh, you know at when the emergency arises in other words we have seen that actually countries which didn't have pp equipment then afterwards uh, They started actually closing the borders. They didn't want to export. So you realize that actually there are certain strategic goods that you really should have to have it at home. So I think that's one thing. Secondly, I think the global value chains, although they have actually withstood this pressure reasonably well. Also, I think people might realize that here again, you cannot kind of entirely rely on a very efficient global value chain that works beautifully under the optimal conditions. Like, why do we have two pilots in a plane? You know, we almost never need the second pilot on short distance. I'm not talking about long distance. But you have it because the cost of of, of a potential, you know, heart attack of one pilot are so high that you have to have the second one. So it's a little bit in global value chains. We have, I think, realized that the cost of possible interruption, which is due to political reasons, you know, trade wars or epidemics in this case, are so high that you really have to have some inbuilt redundancy. So I think that would change as well. So I think the greater role of the state would actually also come back to play more role than before. But on the other hand, I have to say that I'm a little bit skeptical that if from let's suppose five years from now hopefully this would be over within a year or two i don't know but five years from now we would really forget most of it and when you go back to the previous epidemic some of them were worse like uh, the spanish flu and then there was a 1957 epidemic 1968 we forgot about them now this is you can say a little bit different because it's global the world has never been so affected at the same time with the knowledge of this you know But I think that we might forget it and uh, then go back to where we were before. Uh, Not entirely, it's not like a switchboard that you go back, but I think gradually we might sort of go back to where we were.
0: Okay. Um, Now that we've entered the second wave of the pandemic in some parts of the world, what's your outlook for the economic recovery?
1: You know, I'll just repeat what we know all is that basically China has done extremely well. You know, China is such an incredible case. Everybody, like the whole time, you have always somebody who is saying something is going to go wrong in China. You know, China will never able to go in a up global value, I mean, in a sort of more sophisticated production. Well, we now see China competing at the very top level of technological change. Then there was this epidemic. Then, you know, it said actually China would really have horrible, you know, results because of what started in Wuhan. You remember that how it was in January in Wuhan. First time in history, 11 million people were put in a, in a lockdown. That can never happened in history. Now China is like the only, the only major country that will likely have a positive growth rate this year. Uh, for the others, as you know, they're all negative. You know, Some of them, it seems like in the case of the US, it may not be as negative as, as some people feared. But if you look at the European Union, you look at the US, you look at Russia, you look at India, which actually might uh, really go into a very significant depression. Uh, so the, the things don't look, in that sense, good uh, as long as this pandemic lasts. So could be that we are out of it in a, in a year, in which case I think we would have a rebound, certainly but um this is a, in that sense in the in the gdp sense it is a big setback you know because you basically have a negative negative growth which you well you had it in 2008 but not as sharp as 2009 rather but not as sharp as this one
0: economists don't always get it right and i wondered yeah. if you thought whether we need to rethink conventional uh, economic models or economic forecasting we need to consider new variables? I think we need
1: to to really uh, rethink, and actually in that sense, I think ideologically in terms of our ideas, I think the crisis will have an impact, I hope. Uh, We really have to rethink many things. Let me start not with economies, because economists get many things wrong. But I've been so disappointed this time, because of course I don't know other sciences. I thought that, that people, epidemiologists and others, know something. Well, it turns out they really don't know much either. They are like as lost as The Economist. Let me give you an example. I actually watched in February um, uh, Boris Johnson speak to the chief advisor epidemiologist in England, a very nice lady who actually spoke very well. I listened to them, and you know, these are English guys. They're really very eloquent. And she was talking about how great herd immunity is. And I said, well, maybe I'm really wrong because I got obsessed with this thing in January. Maybe I'm wrong because look at this. This is a famous British, you know, um, virusologist or epidemiologist like working, I mean, working with the prime minister. So she must be right. So during the interview, I was really kind of revising my own opinion. Maybe I'm panicking, you know, look, the the Brits are really saying everything is fine. We should go and have soccer games. It's really not a big deal. Then she said, and that made me sort of totally change my mind. She said, you can go and see this interview. We'll see it. I'm not making this up. She said, oh, how do you know that, Boris Johnson said. And she says, oh, you know what? We have really such phenomenal models, and the models generate all these results, and we've seen that actually this is going to you know, affect such a, such a percentage, and then other people would do herd immunity and all that. When she said that, I said, wow, we have in economics models too. I mean, whatever, they depend on whatever you put into that model, and 99% of the time, they are wrong. So as soon as she said that she's depending on the model, I said, okay, forget it, that must be all wrong. And indeed, as you know, it was all wrong because the, because the UK changed within a week after that, the whole strategy. Of course, they have changed six times since, but that was the first time when they have changed. And so that was actually, we have to sort of think, like, what do these people know? Uh, the same two is actually I mentioned of the health system in the U.S., which has really sort of shown itself really in a, in a very bad light. So it is not only the economists who have to rethink things. And let me give you the last example, which I find even really extraordinary. As you might know, in October, as the lack would have it, of the last year, uh, Johns Hopkins and another international organization, I forget, published the index of preparedness of countries for the epidemic. That was a phenomenal. They could not have really chosen a better time to do it. And number one country was the U.S. Number two country was the U.K. Number three country was the Netherlands. All three of them really disasters. And then you look at Vietnam, which actually had probably now, I mean, 10 victims or something like that. Vietnam was number 68. So you say, like, I mean, these are smart people, they take some sort of indicators, but clearly these indicators had nothing to do with reality. (laughs) So we really have to to revise this stuff. You know, it just cannot be like that.
0: Is it a lack of common sense or a lack of lateral thinking? Or what is, what's the stumbling block here?
1: I really don't know, because what I think they did, and actually I actually looked at the components, it, it all sort of looks reasonable. It's like all these indicators that we do in economics as well. We take sort of things that we see out and say, okay, that seems reasonable. And if you put the US and UK on top, nobody's going to question that, because they say, well, these are rich countries, they have lots of doctors, they are smart doctors, you know, they, they are the best in publications. That's another thing, you know. You, you have in the U.S., what I was saying, actually probably 100 or 200 schools of, of um, uh, public health. They probably publish 2,000 papers a year. They happen to have this pandemic once in 100 years, and they are totally unprepared. So you say, I mean, something is wrong here. If you publish 1,000 papers every year, and you get all these reviews and all of that, and then you have really an issue to deal with, and you say, well, I was not prepared. So again, I'm going to go back, actually, so we do something which seems reasonable to us, but clearly that does not actually convey the, the crucial information, or actually we are taking maybe wrong variables. I, I honestly don't know. But if you were to put Vietnam as number one, or Thailand, actually, which did extremely well, uh, and, and of course uh, Taiwan and um, uh, Singapore also and South Korea, they would question that. They would say, well, how come that you put Thailand number one? So you actually go with the indications that seem reasonable and put US number one, and everybody accepts your paper and say, wow, this is really great, until this happens.
2: When your five-year plan turns into a five-day plan, you know you're going through business as unusual. Export Development Canada is here to help companies of all sizes with financial solutions and expert advice. Visit edc.ca today.
0: You're an expert in income inequality. And even before the pandemic, there was a feeling among some people that the economy is rigged against ordinary people, you know, whether it be the gilets jaunes protests in France, the Brexiteers, Trump supporters. Is there any truth to this sentiment?
1: Well, I think there is some truth to that sentiment and there is something which is not necessarily the the rigged part but I think there is a part which actually you have globalization affecting different groups of people very differently. So let me distinguish between these two. The globalization I think affects the middle class in western countries negatively simply because for the reasons that we all know that the jobs actually have gone out simply because people who are in rich countries can do the same job as people who are in Burma, but at the cost which is five times or ten times high. So globalization has undermined the, the middle class in rich countries the same way that the previous globalization has undermined, for example, Indian production of textiles or clothing because England came in with much more effective way of producing the Manchester system and basically destroyed. Actually, if you look at the data from 1800, India was actually producing more clothing than England. And then you look 50 years after that, it's a total change. So we should not sort of see this as a kind of a surprising development. When you have these massive things like globalization, there are of course people who get affected and who lose. And, uh, but nobody, of course, told them in advance. Nor did we necessarily know. But didn't we tell them? You know, look at the middle class. Margaret Thatcher didn't go and say, "Well, we we'll are favor globalization because I would really like to get rid of the of the British middle class." No, she, she told them the opposite, of course. But it turned that actually they are the losers. So actually, that is not the rigged system. It's simply that uh, that uh, that the forces of of Technological change as well, which I didn't mention, technological change and globalization made a certain, certain groups of people lose out. Not necessarily in absolute terms, because they, their incomes did not really go down in real terms, but they did not go up much. So that's one part. Now, the rigged part is a little bit different. I think the rigged part has to do with really inequity, particularly in the U.S., in the tax system. And, uh, you know, uh, unreasonably low, uh, high taxes, and actually, uh, just simply, I'm not only going to mention Trump, which is an extreme case. But, you know, uh, what, to realize what is the, the problem there, just think that Trump did not become president. He, he would not be subject to all these tax, all this and all of that stuff. So he, uh, like other businessmen like him, would have continued paying zero taxes for years. Nobody would have actually discovered, as they didn't discover 20 years since. So then you realize that the system where you have millionaires who are really paying ridiculous amount of taxation is a system which is rigged against people who who cannot afford that. So in that sense, I think there are both elements and the second element is present as well.
0: Is there a reckoning coming on income inequality?
1: It would be hard. Again, I'm influenced by the situation in, in the U.S., but I think it would be hard because essentially if that second element, like state taxation and government spending and so on, it's so difficult to change. Uh, first, because the, the, the inbuilt system is so complex that you cannot really, it seems to me, change it anymore by small variations there because it is really such a huge animal that actually many people don't even know what exists there myself included i'm paying taxes really you know i know a little bit but you know i cannot really tell this whole system because it is so so complex secondly you could change it and of course in that sense again it's like with with epidemiologists Uh, u.s has i mean i mean tax experts i mean professors who are the, the best in the world they could redesign it but the issue is actually those who politically have to implement that are beneficiaries of this so how are they going to do it? You know, I've actually started for a year to read in the Wall Street Journal. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there is only there are two issues that they have. I tweeted well that. One is low taxes and second, high stock market. And there is nothing else. So everything else is actually a function. I mean, it's, it's inbuilt into this. So if there is something else X, which, is, which happens, we just look at that X. Is it going to reduce our taxes? And is going to make the stock market go up. If X is doing that, X is good. If if X doesn't do that, then it's bad. So that's all. So how are these people going ever to accept that top 1% pays more or top 5% actually pays more? No, they're never going to accept that. So they're not going to fund their lobbies so that they actually, these lobbies come back and actually charge them more.
0: What do you think should happen? Should there be a simplified tax code, a progressive tax rate, or just a tax on the wealthy? What, what should happen?
1: I think actually the, the best but unrealistic uh, approach would be basically to have a, a sort of a total tax overhaul where you would actually invite, I don't know, 15 best tax specialists and put them together with the uh, sort of people from the both parties. And they start from practically from scratch. Uh, of course, I think that actually the taxation of inheritance is important. I think that actually the purpose, possibly with taxation of wealth, and I certainly think that you know the tax rates at the very top, not only the statutory tax rates because if you look at the u s the statutory tax rate is now i think the highest one is thirty six point five or thirty five point five and it used to be thirty nine point five so there i mean these are not i mean one should add also the state tax uh which would make you like you know almost 50 percent at the marginal tax at the very top. So it's not small, but the point is that actual uh, actual payments are much lower, and that's actually I have very strong doubts that the very top, the, the, uh, the effective tax rate which is paid, is the statutory. Because people find enormous number of loopholes, their sources of income, which like, for example, income um, uh, from capital is often not taxed at the ordinary tax rate, and then eventually you have the situation like Romney, twelve percent, Trump zero, and uh, even even Biden, a thirty percent average tax rate, and he's in one million dollar bracket. That's not a high tax rate for one million bracket, you know. So it's actually again there are sources of income. This is not cheating, but there are sources of income that you are, of course uh, you know have, or you present the situation in the best possible way. So I I think it is not, um, that would have to be changed.
0: Okay, so what is the risk of this pandemic triggering social unrest in the United States?
1: I I wrote actually about the danger in March, uh, that was an article in Foreign Affairs, that actually one of the dangers is really, uh, not only in the US, but I had broadly. I I still think that actually it it is a danger in the sense that people are really unhappy in many countries with how the governments have managed this. And if you take, you know, you take countries like Brazil, you can take Spain, where actually it has become really a political problem, uh, also because of the underlying dissatisfaction in the relationship between Madrid and Barcelona. So it has become a problem. Um, It it has uh, been a problem in Bulgaria, for example. Uh, So many people are really unhappy with the way that these things are being done by their governments. On top of them, many people might, of course, since they are losing jobs and losing income, at some point would become sufficiently desperate to start actually, you know, going after, you know, markets or, or stores. So I, I, you know, in Brazil, there was a a couple of, in Italy also, there was a a couple of uh, rebellions of prisoners and so on. So I I don't think that we are out of it, you know, it's still going on, Russia as well. Uh, So it is not uh, impossible that it gets worse. In the US, of course, got worse for many reasons, because there was the the racial now element, which was, um, uh, you know, which came on top of it. But uh, we will have, I think, quite a few uh, social disturbances continuing.
2: When your global office is five steps away from your bedroom, when your five-year plan turns into a five-day plan, when you're rethinking how you do business, that's when you know you're going through business as unusual. At Export Development Canada, we're shifting too. We're widening our focus from helping Canadian companies go global to helping companies of all sizes simply keep going. Visit edc.ca for financial solutions and expert advice to help your company.
0: I want to pivot slightly here in the conversation and ask you about your childhood.
1: That's a big pivot. <laughs> it's a big pivot. <laughs> it's like a totally different direction. Okay, uh, let's go with that. Now. Well, we
0: want the listeners to get to know you as a person.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: So tell us about your childhood and how it's shaped the person you are today? Well, it's, it's a
1: difficult question, actually. No, it's not really so much childhood. I, mean, ch- I think it's really the, the ages of maybe 14 to 20 or around that actually uh, influence you a lot. I think many people are influenced. I think actually the high school, in my opinion, are much greater influencer of one's life than universities, because universities are, you show up there and uh, you know, you might study or not study, but really it's a different thing because in, in high schools, I think oftentimes you're still malleable and uh, the teacher's influence is, is very strong on you. you. You know, I did high school in Belgium. So the Belgian high school influenced me in several respects. First of all, what people, many people don't know, particularly in the U.S., they're surprised. But, you know, this was a public high school in Belgium in the late 60s, early 70s. And ideologically, most of the, I mean, professors, not most, but several important professors were very Marxist. So it was a time of the late 60s, early 70s, where the whole sort of ideological atmosphere was Marxist in reality. When I say Marxist, it doesn't mean theory of labor theory of value. It means really explanation of most phenomena by economic reasons. It's basically, you know, economic determinism, if you want to or materialistic conception of history. So they were actually, uh, that was the the case. Uh, it was a, a school where you had religion, but only if you wished to have religion. Otherwise, you had something which was called moral, and most students did that. So religion was really, for me, a striking thing when I came to the United States, first time, to see all these churches. I've never seen that stuff, you know, because in Europe you had like, established churches, big churches, big building, you know, lots of stones. And that's the church. It was built like 300 years ago and that's it. And I come to the United States and I see all these churches that are really uh, bizarre. I never knew that there are so many churches. I had like, I thought there were like about four or five, but not like 200. And the building, you know, like ordinary buildings, but it played a big role. And uh, to go back, how it was influenced for me in those days, things like and actually also when i went back to to, to belgrade to do my my uh, uh, university studies i was very much uh, sort of looking forward i mean to the future in the sense that for me the future was first i never thought there would be breakup of Yugoslavia because i think that the kind of extreme nationalism was a thing of the past i thought religion was a thing of the past And I thought that all the things like kings and queens and all that were really kind of weird, think of the past. And I remember when, you know, they had uh, the marriage. I remember it was one of the first issues of The Economist that I ever read, that's why it stuck in my mind. They had a marriage of um, one of these uh, daughters of the, you know, it was not Diana, it was before her. They had uh, a big uh, uh, cover page, saying the republics are dangerously out of date. Believe it or not, that was probably 74 or something like that. And I said, these guys are absolutely nuts. You know, you're talking about these kings or queens from Middle Ages, you know, and then we should. But, you know, I was wrong on that. Obviously, nationalism came back swinging, you know, not only in Yugoslavia broke up the country, but, of course, in many countries, actually, nationalism is really back very strongly. Uh, then religion is like totally back, not only among, you know, sort of what is called Islamic fundamentalists, but fundamentalists of all kinds. You know, you actually, and the the public display of religion is huge. I mean, Trump is the first one who doesn't go to church every Sunday, but it's hypocritical. They, I mean, many of these people never go to church anyway, but they show up to the church and, you know, go. And so I was wrong on that too. And on kings and queens, I I don't think I was quite wrong because they have not really spread, you know.
0: What do you think of the fact that Canada maintains a monarchy?
1: I think it's bizarre. I think, you know, it's really bizarre. So I I know people like tradition and all that, but they're really weird traditions. You know, having like a normal president like Germany does or Italy, the president need not be an executive president, but who could be a, a, a To some extent, a figure who would maintain the same position that the governor does in in Canada would seem to me quite reasonable.
0: Okay, so we should become a republic.
1: Let me just put it like that. When people talk about equality of um, opportunity, equality of chances and things like that, and inequality in general, very often I'm struck by, for example, when you talk about Eastern Europe and communist system, and you'll see the little connection. uh, They say to you, Oh but look you know Brezhnev had like three uh, you know big houses and he drove big cars and all that so inequality could not have been so low because you know look at that you know the politburo members lived there and then we talk about inequality of opportunity and then I started saying okay great data from uh, Norway Sweden uh, Holland Belgium who is at the top of these countries how did they become kings or queens where is the equality of opportunity there? It's actually an extreme case of inequality of opportunity. You were just born to a king or a queen, and you become a king or a queen. So if, if there is any case of extreme inequality, that's the case. So uh, I'm not saying I do deny the data, which it is really true for those countries that actually they have very high social mobility. But it illustrates the mistake of just going after only the top because it is equally non-valid to actually pull out Brezhnev with his cards and say well there was a huge inequality in the Soviet Union as it is invalid to pull out the king and the queen of the Netherlands and to say that the Dutch don't have social mobility uh, but I do actually if you look at them uh, themselves it really it is an, ex- an extreme example of uh, inequity of uh, inequality in opportunity and I have to say that too I've said it m- a couple of times when I was at the World Bank. I mean, it really is grating on you that you have these people who actually really don't deserve anything come to the World Bank and to the IMF and to the UN and give big speeches about the poverty in the third world and people should have equal chance and gender equality. I mean, who are you? I mean, who are they? Honestly. I I mean, they actually were born to these parents and they talk about equality opportunities. opportunity. It's kind of totally weird.
0: These are great points. Why did you become an economist?
1: Well, I was interested, you know, in social, as I mentioned before, the, the high school had an impact on me. And actually, I was interested in uh, social and economic things. And actually, I like numbers. Is uh, Angus Madison, whom I actually got to know, Uh, towards the end of his life. Unfortunately, I knew him only last five or six years of his life, a great scholar and a great economic historian, Uh, and lover of numbers, invented this term from French. He called it chiffrefil, so the lover of numbers. And I actually loved, like numbers. And uh, to some extent, like mathematics, but mathematics is not only numbers. Obviously, it's much much deeper than that. Uh, so I like statistics and social uh, issues. So you know, if you put these two together, you you basically end up with uh, with interest in inequality. And you know, for example, you might know, but my dissertation in Yugoslavia, the the PhD dissertation was inequality income distribution in Yugoslavia. So it was it was not the first, but it was one of the first uh, empirical studies. Of inequality in, in Yugoslavia. There are not only there are relatively few studies of socialist countries done. They, are, they exist, but you know you probably have about I don't know 20 studies at most. You know, and also I was interested. You know, which I'm actually going back now. I hope to my next book, if there is one, would be on things that I really liked reading in those days. Uh, because I read Marx quite a lot. I read Adam Smith, and I reread him now. And so it was, I liked uh, economic, um, history of economic thought as well. Uh, So now of course I'm doing that with um, uh, um, a focus on what they actually, how they perceived inequality. And I find that quite interesting because nobody has really done that before.
0: In your writings, you've distinguished between different types of capitalism. For example, the West's model of liberal capitalism and China's political capitalism. Given this crisis that we're seeing because of the pandemic, do you believe that these models are still s- sustainable?
1: Well, no, I think they are just, the sustain- I mean, they, they are actually uh, models which per, per se don't depend on the pandemic. They actually exist before, existed before, and they will continue existing afterwards. I think that the p- political capitalism model, I mean, in my, de- you know, definition, you know, has several features which I think define that model. Uh, the first feature is the need for a bureaucracy that delivers results in economic growth. It's actually legitimacy of the Chinese model, as many people have pointed out, it rests on delivery of economic growth. Legitimacy of democracy rests on winning the last election. So it's, it's a different type of legitimacy. And the, uh, the second point is that in the Chinese the political capitalism in general, China for me is the most important example, but you can also have quite a few other countries from Algeria to, you know, to Azerbaijan or Russia. That's the same in that sense. Uh, the absence of the rule of law. And the absence of the rule of law is very important because without that, you uh, do not have the, the means of discretion or discretionary punishment of people whom you, businessmen who you want to punish, or advantages to some of them that you want to give. So I think that's the second feature. And the third feature, which is actually very important for China and which historically has been the case with China, is the autonomy of the state. In other words, the state is not taken over by capitalist interests the way that it is taken over in the US. When we were discussing all these problems in the US with taxation, we are discussing it because de facto we acknowledge that that system is taken over by people who have money. So it's not really a democracy, it is really a plutocracy. So let's be very clear about this. In China, the autonomy of the political system is guaranteed so far. So it doesn't necessarily mean good things. It means that actually political system can punish you if they decide that you have actually spoken against Xi. But it's not being taken over so, you know, by the uh, um, economic interest. Now, however, the problem in that system, I think, are twofold, at least. One is that this contradiction between the absence of the rule of law and the need for an efficient bureaucracy, means that between these two things, uh, um, how should I say, these two ideas collide. And when they collide, they create an opening for corruption. So the corruption is really inherent to that system. And the, the second problem, which then makes that system look similar to the US, is that you use, and of course, many people in China do that, use political connection to become rich and then you combine economic and political power so that's of course i think a danger and we see that also in the recruitment of the top cadres in in china uh, many of them of course come from the families that have already been as they call the princelings and others and then of course they combine for their ch- uh, children uh, wives family members they combine the power on the in the economic arena and that, actually, I think it's, it's a very dangerous development, so, which makes China, in some respects, look the U.S. with this combination of political and economic power. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, my book deals quite a lot of China, and the first part of the chapter on China is, you can say from their ideological perspective, very, very positive for them. But the second part is what I was saying Now. And that's why I don't think the book will be translated in China. It's translated in uh, Taiwan, in the complex Chinese, but not in uh, simple Chinese in, uh, in, on the mainland, which I, I regret, actually. And there are other things that I actually translated, because I would like to have much more of a, a Chinese view on what I wrote.
0: We're obviously a Canadian uh, media organization, so I wanted to ask you about what should Canada's role be in this new world order?
1: I mean, if you start geopolitically, it's a part of five eyes, So, you know, its role is to some extent determined by that. But maybe it is uh, the least um, maybe exposed out out of these uh, five. So the advantage of being uh, more, uh, how should I say, not neutral in a negative sense, but maybe more less associated with uh, what is perceived very often, maybe rightly, American imperialism is, is an advantage. So Canada, to some extent, can play it both ways that way.
0: So there's an advantage to being an overlooked G7 country?
1: G7 is, too, too, to be quite honest, I agree with that. It's actually an obsolete institution in the sense that really it is it is something which was found in the 1970s. The world was entirely different than from today. You have countries that, are, that need to be, I mean, there is G20 as well. But, you know, how can you have organizations now uh, without... Uh, uh, without Brazil, without India. I'm not taking taking China and Russia, which are a little bit different, but these are really large democratic countries, actually the largest democratic countries, or Indonesia. And you, and you have this really paradoxical situation that these countries that I just mentioned, which on top of that are largest democracies, are not part of that. And then in organizations like the IMF or the World Bank, you have really tiny countries with, no great international importance like Belgium and the Netherlands and the others that have voting rights or Switzerland that are equivalent to the voting rights of Brazil. I mean, it's really, I mean, crazy. I mean, the world has changed. This is not 1945, nor is 1975 when the G7 was was created. So in that sense, I think that that would be, there is a need for a a significant uh, readjustment
0: just because of your uh, former position with the World Bank, you know, is the World Bank likely to meet its goal of ending global poverty by 2030? You
1: know, this uh, crisis now do rep- does represent really a significant uh, setback because because you then have to get out of that hole, you know, so it might take you like several years to, to go back to the trajectory that you were before. Uh, but um, so it would, uh, I think, I don't know, you know, it, it probably would not, Uh, realized that objective by 2030 when it was supposed to be realized but it could be postponed but you know it would be eventually realized it's it is enough it is to some extent ambitious but on the other hand not so ambitious it's ambitious in the sense that we would get rid ideally of everybody I mean not of them but we would not have any people who are extremely poor, which is defined currently as $1.90 per day per capita, which is a very, very modest, I mean, hugely modest amount. So in that sense, it is not something which is unachievable. So I'm really, if you ask me a question, would that goal be attained? I think yes, it can be attained with a few years of delay. We, we should not discount the importance of that, but we should not think that basically the job is done because nobody's living under that really. It's, a, uh, it's basically survival minimum. So, you know, we would, I mean, people below that barely survive. So, yes, I think we would be able to achieve that.
0: That was Branko Milanovic, economist and visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Rita Tricher. Restoring Confidence is a Globe and Mail podcast. Its producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producer is Kiran Rana.